0: Uh I'd, I laughed. I was doing taught, I was teaching this in Lafayette. I teach it there every year, this particular talk. And I, I said I should have called this four favorite passages, and it'd be more fun to teach and it'd be more fun to listen. But you'll get all five. All right, let's start with 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. What a great, powerful chapter. Every verse in this chapter is important. It's they I use them often in counseling, and I'm going to just give you the highlight again in your notes. You don't have anything you need to fill in. You're just going to be able to listen, take notes, underline, circle, do whatever you need to do, and you can look in your Bible to check me out. But the idea is as a believer, your passion is given to you by God. You see that in 2 Corinthians 5, and I think it's fascinating because even in chapter 4, as he ends it, He ends for in saying, we don't want to lose heart, right? We want to endure. This is a light affliction. We want to live for the Lord. And then he begins to describe why we want to live for the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit ingrains in us this desire to go to be with God. We understand this isn't our home. Corbin said yesterday, he said, boy, this has been a great trip, but I'll be glad to get home. Why, son? Because home is home. I just enjoy home. Well, we all enjoy home. The Spirit gives us this desire to be home, but our home isn't here on earth because we understand this body's just a tent. It's just a tabernacle. We're going to ultimately be clothed, truly clothed, and go and enjoy home with the Lord. So we have this built-in homesickness. Because of our eternal future with Christ, we desire to be with the Lord. Verse 6 says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So he is anticipating, Paul is anticipating going to heaven To forever be with the Lord. And that anticipation is being driven by the Holy Spirit, right? It's built in. It ought to be typical for every believer. So now he makes his first observation. Verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. This is a critical verse in Counseling. So he says, regardless of whether I'm on earth, which currently I am when he's writing this, or I'm in heaven, doesn't matter. I'm anxious to get to heaven. I desire to be with the Lord, but until I, be with the, until I get there and until I am in his presence, my goal is the same. What is it? To be well-pleasing to him, to live for his glory. Right. So I often have counselees memorize verse nine as part of the function of I want them in their mind to begin to see whether I'm on earth or whether I'm in heaven. That doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm living my life to bring glory to the Lord. Right. So this is a purpose of life verse. And so we spend a lot of time here. Now, I hate to because this is all these are fantastic. But let's jump to verse 14. He goes on to say there, for the love of Christ compels us. Now, let's just look at 13 just for the fun of it. It says, for we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we're of sound mind, it is for you. That is a great verse. I often ask counselees, has anyone ever called you crazy? Right, because he's saying, you may call me crazy, but this is why I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Because I am so passionately following the Lord. I am 100% when he says, let this mind be in you, or, which was also in Christ, that's Philippians and Colossians. He says, think on uh, what Colossians 3, the first four verses, when he's talking about to have your mind in uh, heaven. Totally not getting that right. He says, if you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Paul's mind was on the Lord, and he was so intensely following the Lord. He said, if I lived as passionate as what I am on the inside, you would really think I'm crazy. But he says, I pull back, verse 13, if you think I'm of sound mind, it's for you. I don't say everything. I've, he's so sold, for the, sold out for the Lord. He says, but ah, I pull back just a shade. Verse 14. Why does he do it? For the love of Christ compels us. That's why. The love that God had for me in Christ motivates me. It compels me. Right? It's the love God has for Paul. That's what creates his movement. Right? That's what controls him. And so he says, it's, he's motivated by the death of Christ for his salvation. It compels us because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the love of God is demonstrated by the substitutionary death of Jesus. And that motivated everything. This is another key counseling verse. I want my counselees motivated by many things. But the primary thing I want them motivated by is the love that Jesus, the love that God has for them as demonstrated in Christ. Right? I want that to be their primary motivation. Verse 15. The death of Christ provides the believer with purpose. It says, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, I typically will tell my, count, <coughs> my counselee, when you live for Christ vertically, that's what? That's going to impact what you do horizontally. So that you also live for and love your neighbor as well. So verses 14 and 15. Now look at 16. It says, therefore, from now on, since I am motivated by the love of Christ and I'm living for Christ and not myself, which means I'm going to be engaged well with people, it says from now on, on, we're going to regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Basically, there's a new perspective. You don't focus on the externals, you focus on the eternal. That means it doesn't matter how many holes or tattoos or whatever somebody has, what color their hair is, whether or not they love rainbows or not, or why they love rainbows. None of those things matter. You can't get distracted by the external because we're motivated by the love of Christ. And the love of Christ radically redeemed us when we were not redeemable. God chose to save us And we want to have that same kind of love for other people. So we don't get distracted by people's sin. We don't get distracted by the fact that they're a sinner. Instead, we look past that and we realize this is a person who has either a right relationship with God or he needs to change or she needs to change their relationship with God. And that's what motivates me. Right? So 16, it changes the way I see people. 17, I realize That the old is gone and the new has arrived. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has arrived or all things have become new. So the new has come. Just one observation here. We do not have two natures. Right, The sin nature and the the old man and new man do not coexist at the same time. You are one person on the inside. You are either all in Adam by that, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you have no eternal life, you have no spiritual life whatsoever, or you're all in Christ and you're clothed in the new man. This verse says what? The new has come, the old has gone. Right? So now that has impacted your new man. Verse 18 then through 21. Reconciliation is possible because of Christ's substitutionary work. Notice in 18. Now all things are of God. It's God's plan through Christ that we get to offer reconciliation to people. He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the gospel in one verse. I love to camp out here with counselees and help them understand what is the true essence of the gospel. It's there in verse 21. Those who accept Christ are the beneficiaries, no doubt, of what God is doing through Christ in us. The benefit is the righteousness of God in him, and that includes past, present, and future sins. And we have the pleasure of sharing that with people in verses 19 and 20 because we're ambassadors. Okay, so how can you communicate this truth to your counselee? I love the idea of an ambassador, right? That's where I like to spend some time. Who is an ambassador? What does an ambassador do? We'll talk more about this in the hour after uh, lunch, so I'm not going to spend much time on it now, but you can just jot yourself a note. The sense of what and who an ambassador is, what their role is, what their goals are, those are important as I think through this particular chapter. Okay, what are some implications then for your counselee? I've got these written as questions you can ask. One question, what's your aim, right? Which direction are you pointing? What would make you feel successful? What would make you feel fulfilled? What would give you satisfaction? Those are all questions that are, the goal is to help what is driving this counselee. Because is this counselee driven by verse nine? I live my life to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Or does some other way, Would he or she define success some other way? Does the love of Christ control you is a good question. Every person has a choice. That choice is who or what are you going to live for? This text helps make that clear. Through what perspective do you look at the world around you? Are you looking at things that don't matter? Are you looking at it the way God wants you to look at it? Does your life reflect the fact that the new has come? Verse 17. And do you understand the hope of reconciliation? Without it, of course, there is no hope. Those are just some questions that you can keep in the back of your mind as you help people think through this. What about you for the counselor? Let me give you some of those. Always be careful to balance the comfort of the gospel with the call of the gospel. Right? We want to tell people about the good news of the gospel, what God has done for them in Christ, through the Spirit, but we also want to call them to live differently because of that, right? So there's a balance. There's, we must give them the story of the gospel, but that needs to be associated with the call of the gospel. Therefore, you can live and be different. You can never really counsel accurately without anchoring your counselee's hope in union with Christ, If you're saying to a counselee, listen, you can change, you can do it. The goal isn't to be a a cheerleader. The goal is to anchor their hope in what Jesus has already done, what God has done, pardon me, in Christ, in the person. So when their hope is in the change that God is doing through Christ in them, then they have the foundation that they can make change, that they can do differently. Life is only possible through the power of the gospel as being part of the body of Christ. So do not neglect that connection for our counselees. If you're struggling with the counselee changing, ask yourself if you have adequately taught the balance between knowing and doing. I think all of these issues are here in chapter 5, and here's the final implication here. As you interact with other counsellors, Counselor training and counseling resources, pay attention to the balance and make sure to balance what you hear and read as necessary. So the balance I'm talking about is you want the gospel call. This is what you need to do, but that always has to be connected to what God has already done. Okay, so some homework possibilities. Have We got a list here. Consider the implications throughout the passage and have the counselee consider ones, ones, right? You can pick one or two implications, have them think about it, journal it, contemplate it, and be ready to discuss it next time you talk with them. Using key passages, you can have them make a card, review it so many times each day, like 2 Corinthians, write down 2 Corinthians 5.9 on a card, keep it with you look at it 20 times, review it 20 times on the back of that card, write down today's Friday, Saturday. So on the back of that card, write down Saturday. And every time you look at it, just put a little mark and do it at least 20 times a day and do that every day this week. And then next week we're going to talk about the impact this verse has made, right? That's kind of a homework. Make, uh, You can also have them memorize the following. i like to have them put this on a card. What does God expect of me to bring him glory? How can I bring him glory? I can bring him glory by becoming like Christ. Uh, God knows I'm not perfect, but he does expect me to be growing. And where does God want me to grow and change today? And what am I doing about it? Those are several questions that you can have them write down and think about during the week. Um. There's a whole list of disciplines that you might want to start pursuing with your counselee. Accountability partners are good. And remember, as you work with this person in this text, you want to remember some basic counseling outcomes that are true for all of your counseling. So again, I said we're just looking at these briefly. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Hopefully it's helpful to you. All right, let's go to the next one. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is another favorite of mine. Verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God wants us to understand how to review and how to view and respond to circumstances. That's what verse 13 is about. Now, let me give you some key points that you want to communicate from this text. Again, it's one of my favorites. Here's the first one Your circumstance is common to man. Situations fall in the category of common to man. Now, why is that important? Because the world system has an entire thick book called the DSM-5 that categorizes situations as uncommon to man. Right? Oh, well, you're this, and so they give someone a label. So you're no longer in the category of normal people. Now you're in the category and some have some kind of label on a couple of different axes. So the world system looks at life and looks at difficulties and looks at pressures and looks at your response to those pressures and they would label you one way or another and that seems to pull you out of common and makes you, for some, it makes them feel special. For others, it makes them have a sense of, boy, what am I going to do now? I'm broken, I'm whatever. The Bible says, no, your situation's common to mankind. Right? You're not that special. right? You're just a normal person in a normal situation. Although in the middle of that circumstance, it can feel very abnormal. But the Bible classifies it for us. There's no temptation. What is the word temptation? It's the word parosmos, and it is a neutral term. Now, in English, when we read the word temptation, we often immediately think of it as a temptation to sin. The word itself just simply means a pressure filled circumstance. It can be translated either as temptation, which it is here in like James chapter 1, it's translated as trial. Same word. All right, so the English word can have either nuance to it. But this is the key meaning. It's a pressure-filled circumstance. So what happens is when you are in the midst of that pressure-filled circumstance, the way you respond to it in your heart is going to determine if that pressure in your life was a trial that you were faithful and you honored God or that pressure was a temptation where it produced a solicitation to sin in your heart, and then you sinned. But the pressure is the same. So when he says here that there is no, let's just call it the neutral term, there is no pressure that has overtaken you, but such as is common to mankind. So the pressure you're in is similar to the pressure that other people are in. I'm going to suggest that that pressure generally falls under the categories of just life in a sin-cursed world, right? So your pressure is like everybody else's pressure, and your response to it then can be like Jesus's. Jesus, remember what Hebrews says? He went through every pressure, it's a word temptation in most English translations, just like you do, but he was faithful in the midst of those pressures, right? So there's a sense here that we, like Jesus, go through these common to man pressures. In the midst of them, what? God is faithful, but God is faithful. It emphasizes the character and the power of God. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God limits the power of the circumstance the circumstance has in your life. Here are two major implications. The situation cannot make you sin. You, your counselee, but let's you're the one sitting here, so let's talk to you. You can never Point to your situation and say, this is why I sinned. That's what Adam tried to do. And what did God say? No, sir. Right? You're responsible and you're cursed because you committed the sin, regardless of what Eve did. Same for Eve. So the situation cannot make you sin. That means what's going on in your brain cannot make you sin. Right? There isn't any part, if if it's the outer man... There isn't any element of the circumstances around you that force you to sin because what? God limits it. It emphasizes grace. God doesn't allow circumstances to have that authority and kind of control over you. But God is faithful. He will not allow that to happen. But what does he do? He provides a way of escape. Now, Notice the goal of the escape. Go to verse 13 again. It says, but will with the temptation, the pressure, will make the way of escape. Now, what's the goal? That you will be able to bear it. That you'll be faithful in the midst of it. That's the goal. It isn't to escape it. The way of escape is always provided, but it's not the kind of escape you think. When I think of escape, you think of flight. right? I think, well, get me out from underneath it. I'm ready to be outside of this pressure. But the escape in this text is from sin toward faithfulness. It's not necessarily relief. It's from sin and toward faithfulness. That's important for us to understand. Now, why? how do I communicate this to my counselee? I like to use Star Trek. I think it's, for us, especially those that are my age or older, it's easy, which would mean 35, right? Or something close to that. <laughs> it's easy to remember, right, the USS Enterprise with Captain Kirk. So you have Captain Kirk, and I think his name was Commander Spock. Often they would take somebody else, possibly uh, Bones, right? Leonard McCoy, who is the doctor, and they would go on a wave team. And so they would they would go out of the Enterprise, and they would go to wherever it is, a different ship or a different place. Remember they would, uh, I don't remember the name of what it is, but they would transport or use a, tr- I don't know the word, but they would be transported to this other place and right before they would get killed or hurt or whatever, they would hit this little transponder and what would they say? Beam me up, up, Scotty. I think most Christians view this passage as the beam me up, Scotty passage. God, you promised escape, now get rid of this pressure. Right? Christians are looking for the relief. They're not looking to be faithful in the midst of. But this text is about being faithful in the midst of it. right? So regardless of the pressure, this passage promises that God will let me endure. That I can get through it without sin. It is possible. What are implications then? Well, the counselee must be careful to see this circumstance according to God's perspective, not the perspective of their family, the church, the world, their experience, or their logic. All situations fit in one category. That category is normal to human experience. So the counselor and counselee must both be aware of the temptation to see this experience outside the category of common It's very easy to miscategorize what you're going through. If you call it the wrong thing, and if you evaluate it the wrong way, it's going to make it highly difficult to get through it. Ultimately, every situation must be considered in light of the character and work of God. God will not allow. God limits, and God provides, and God, as the text says, God is faithful. The grace of God is huge here. Make sure your counselee is focused on grace. Because if we're not careful, we can minimize grace. We can and our counselee can. The counselee must also consider the content of their prayer. What are they desiring? Are they praying to escape from it? Are they praying to be faithful in it? That's a critical difference in the prayer. For the counselor, it's essential to understand that our own tendencies toward misunderstanding circumstances and sin. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Right? This is just a self-counsel statement. We want to make sure we see our own heart and life in it well, too. Okay, here's some homework assignments. They're listed there for you. I really like the second one, a reminder card. I have people memorize this. God's grace is up to the challenge. Whatever challenge it is, God's grace is up to it. Okay, that's First Corinthians 10:13. That's a fun one to do. Let's look at James 1. James 1. 1045? Okay, that's our goal. James 1, two to 12. This is another good one. Again, we could spend hours on these. So in James 1, 2 to 12, the context here is God sends us circumstances to help us become more like Jesus. So what kind of circumstances? The circumstances we were just talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look at verse 2. My brethren, all Christians, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. The word trial here is our same word we just had in 1 Corinthians 10.13. So we know that it can be translated temptation or it be translated trial. It's a pressure-filled circumstance. So what does he say? Count it joy. The word count is an accounting term, right? When you put it on paper and you do the math and you say this circumstance in light of God's work, in light of my progressive sanctification, when you do all the math, The answer is, this should bring me joy to be in this circumstance because God is using this circumstance for my beneficial good. right? So he's saying, count it pure joy when you go through these various trials. Why? Because knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its completed work. That means you need to let this... Go until it's finished because when it's finished you can be perfect and complete lacking nothing or having all your pieces together in other words in your character you're missing something God knows you he knows your heart in his sovereignty he brings a pressure You are underneath that pressure, and as you endure that pressure, he's building your spiritual muscles while also changing you at the character level. So what should you do about it? In verse 5, you ask for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given. You're saying, God, give me the capacity, the word wisdom here, Give me the capacity to take your word and apply it to this situation, right? Don't think of wisdom as, as should I go to Wendy's or, no, you don't even have a Wendy's, right? So should I go to Dairy Queen or should I go to uh, Subway? That is not the wisdom, this text. That's not the stuff God's telling you. What God is telling you, what God is giving you when it says wisdom is he's given you the inner man capacity to take his word and apply it in circumstances, right? So he's not, so he says in your tough circumstance, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. He gives you the capacity to be able to take the Bible and apply it in your circumstance, He says, ask in faith. Now, don't be a double-minded man. Who's a double-minded man in verse 8? It's a person who says, I'm all in, but then he's doing his own thing. Right? He's hedging his bets. You're supposed to have a sole focus on following the Lord in the midst of your circumstances. And in verse 12, he says, you will be blessed. Blessed is the man who endures temptation right? So you're going to be blessed. You get a reward for it. Okay. I ran through that quickly. I know that. It's great stuff. How can you think through that? How can you communicate that to a counselee? Let me suggest two ways. First, have you ever bought an item and when you arrived home, some of the pieces were missing? We had a, we had a grill. We bought our first house 20-something years ago now, and we bought that house and... And, well, my son is 22. He was one when this happened. So 21 years ago. Uh, We went to Walmart. We dropped Kelly off at the front. A good husband dropped her off at the door. I was taking care of the baby in the car. We were going to drive around the parking lot while she was doing her shopping. So when we were driving up to the front, I noticed that along the wall, they had all kinds of grills, and they had those. They used to put those orange starbursts on them. So you could tell. It was about 5 o'clock at night, dark. It was wintertime. You could tell, though, that those were all on sale. So I didn't say anything. I just dropped her off, drove quickly around the rest of the parking lot, pulled up on the sidewalk because I had my one-year-old in the car. So I pulled up on the sidewalk so I could read those signs. Every grill on that wall were $50 each. So I thought in my mind, oh, I've got a new house. A new house, I'm a man. A new house with a man, you need, I have a deck. On that deck, you need a grill. So I, of course, all the other men in the parking lot, as soon as they saw me pull up there, they start heading over. So I jumped out of the car, paying careful attention. My son's in the car. I jump out of the car and I just, I scan quickly, find the very biggest one, And pull the thing. There's a friend actually. It's a guy that went to a church that I knew. His name was Charlie. He came out and I said, Charlie, I want this one. Don't have a truck. I was in a Honda. I have a little car. I'll have to go bring a truck later to pick this up. But this is mine. He said, okay, we'll pay for it. So Kelly comes out. I pay for it. $50. I have this grand, great big grill. So first pretty day. I go outside because it's time to grill, right? I'm a man. It's what you do as a man. Kelly bought steaks. So we get those steaks prepped. We go outside. And no matter what I did, I could not get it to come on. This grill was worthless. It would not come on. So, right, this is how long ago it was. I thought, you know what? It didn't come with any paperwork because these were all the models. So I thought... Wonder if there's a way to contact their customer service. Maybe they have a web page. That's how long ago it's been. So we figured out the name of the company. I didn't even know the brand of the grill. We called them. We found they did have a web page with the 800 number. We called it, and this sweet lady from the south, she said, honey, you go out. She said first, she said, honey, does your, can you go outside with your phone, right? It's that long. <laughs> yes, because I have a cordless phone. So I go outside. She said, describe everything you see. So I started on the outside, and I went from the top to the bottom and described it. And she said, now open it up and tell me everything that you see. And she said, okay, we'll send you what you need. Two days later, they sent it two-day air, very kind of them. Two boxes arrived. The first one, pretty easy. The second one, I went to pick it up and realized this is almost too heavy to pick up. It was full of parts. I opened it, and there were all kinds of parts missing from this grill. I had no idea what was supposed to be on the inside because I didn't make the grill. I just knew it was a good deal for 50 bucks. (laughs) But when I got all the pieces, now my son has it at his house. 21 years later, it still works like a champ. What's the deal? The inside, I had to talk to the manufacturer because the manufacturer knew what should be there. What I thought was a great deal, I had all kinds of pieces missing. But what truly needed to go on the inside, the manufacturer understood and sent. Now let's apply that. God knows what goes on the inside. God knows what's missing. God knows how you need to grow. Your counselee needs to grow. So he sovereignly brings circumstances, providentially brings circumstances. And in his providence, we go undergo those circumstances. And if we are faithful in them, what's God gonna do? He's gonna give us pieces that we're missing, right? So I think that's a good illustration. Another good illustration I like to use is I keep a carpenter's pencil with me almost all the time. A carpenter's pencil, most people don't know why it's, Most of your counselees will have no clue, or at least in uh, the Ozarks. They don't know why this pencil is created funny looking. So I ask them questions like, well, why do you wonder why that's made that way? Well, I know my granddad used to be a carpenter. I love carpenter pencils, right? They're made this way for a purpose. Sometimes they're called roofers pencils, right? When you put them on something, they're not going to roll off. Plus they fit in that cool little pouch and it writes just perfectly. Right. So there, this is written with pardon me, this is made with this particular kind of lead for a reason. So I'll give that to my counselee and say, hey, I want you to carry this with you all week. And when you're thinking about your circumstance, I want you to think about the fact that God has given you this circumstance for a particular reason. It has a purpose so that you can grow to become like Christ. Right? So that's another way that I try to help people think through this circumstance are their implications? Well, where is the counselee not tended to consider his or her circumstance pure joy? Well, that's easy to do. Does the counselee understand the difference between emotional joy and intellectual joy? Right? Because it's easy to think, oh, I'm just supposed to plaster, <coughs> plaster on a smile. No, the text doesn't say you can't be sad. It says when you do the math, you understand, no, this sad circumstance, this disappointment, This tough circumstance, it's been given by God to help me grow to become like Jesus. Therefore, I can have joy in it. Right? So it's not emotional joy necessarily. The process only works with endurance. It has to have its completed work. Now, here's another illustration I like to use for this text. It is a cake, right? If you put a cake in the heat, put a pan in, you've mixed all the ingredients. If you pull that out in 10 minutes when it's supposed to bake for 20 minutes, you're going to have a mess because the heat didn't do its completed work, right? But if you leave it in the appropriate amount of time, you should have a beautiful cake, right? So when he says here, let it be verse uh, 4, but let it have its finished work, you want to make sure that you work patiently along with God. Challenge the counselee to consider the pieces that God's working on. What is God working on? Where is he working? Watch for areas where the counselee's double-minded. Make sure your counselee sees the hope that James gives in the circumstance. couple of homework assignments, a frustration journal, right? where When you're frustrated, what are you wanting? What's your hope? A pop quiz card, that's Brother Piat gave us to that years ago, Right, just keep that in your pocket, put one in your car, put one in the refrigerator, put it in the bathroom, put it at your desk at work. Right as you go these different places, you just be able to look up and see the question: how am I responding to this circumstance? Right, just gives you a quick pop quiz. And then, of course, you're gonna have them memorize a couple of verses. All right, let's move on. Ephesians, chapter five and six. Now, we can't do every verse here, but let me give you the broad picture. Right, you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and that's where Paul begins to apply the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 provide the foundations, 4, 5, and 6, the application. In 4, 5, and 6, he divides it carefully with the word walk. Right, so in 4, 1, he says to walk worthy. uh, uh, 17, he says, do not walk like an unbeliever. In 5.1, he says that we need to walk in love. In 5.8, he says to walk in light. In 5.15, he says to walk circumspectly. So he's using walk, it's a word for live, and he's using that to divide out the various ways that we can apply chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so in the section I want us to think of briefly is the walk in wisdom. That's 515 through 6.9. in 515. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Now there's an admonition. He's going to be very clear. This is the way you walk in wisdom, 515 to 521. Then he applies that in three particular areas. So let's work through the admonition. He says, be careful how you live, right? Be careful how you live. This contrast, these contrasts help us understand how we are to live carefully or how we're to walk in wisdom. Notice how he does it. He sets up two contrasting ideas. The first one is not as a fool. Now, who is a fool? A fool is said in his heart, there is no God, if we borrow from Psalms. Not as a fool, but as a wise person. Then he says, not as someone who is unwise, but as someone who knows the will of the Lord. How do we know the will of the Lord? We know it through his word. Right? So, then the third category is not someone who is drunk with wine, but someone who is filled with the Spirit. So, he says, don't be a fool who doesn't understand the will of the Lord, who walks around like a drunk person, under the influence that makes his mind not be able to think clearly. Instead, be a wise person who does understand the will of the Lord, and who is filled with the Spirit or has clear thinking, has God consciousness. That's verses 15 through 18. You get to 19, and now you get these five, they're not in your notes if you want the grammar, they're five participles of result. So when you are filled with the Spirit, there's five things that this text says you're going to do. Right, So it's not, do, it's not a recipe. It's not do these five things and you'll be filled with the Spirit. I've heard it preached that way at times. That's inaccurate. Be filled with the Spirit and this is what you're going to do. This is how it's going to look in your life. Five things. What are those? Well, you're going to be speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You'll be singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the first three. You're going to give thanks to God for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's number four. You're going to submit yourself to one another in the fear of God. So what is it? It's singing, speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. Those are the five responses to someone who's walking in the Spirit. Now, why is that important? Because submission here is important. Notice how we've defined it. It's accepting the role that God's called you to. Right? I submit to God, and here it says in 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I submit to my spouse. I submit to my children, and they submit to me. I submit to to my employees, and they submit to me, or if I'm an employee, I submit to my employer, right? So it's about relationships, and it's tracing the authority in those relationships. And here, when he says submit to one another, the person who has authority submits, the person who is under authority submits. Now, what are they submitting to? They're submitting to the role that God's called them to. Right, it's this is often mistaught in the terms of husbands and wives. That so, well, a husband has to give fifty, and a wife has to give fifty, and that's used the way you submit to each other. That's but uh, that's baloney. This text is follow the authority. I submit as a husband. I submit myself to God, to the role He's called me to, and while doing that, I'm submitting to my wife. As the wife, my wife Kelly, she submits herself to God and to her husband by fulfilling the role that God's called her to, right? There's several examples that he gives. He gives three specific examples. He uses what's called a household code, which is the way that you would describe relationships and rules in a particular household in that particular day. And he develops it in three sections. In 22 to 33, he talks about the wife and the husband. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he talks about children and parents. In chapters 6, 5 through 9, he talks about servant and masters. Or we could say that that relates to uh, employers and employees. It's a fabulous text. There's a lot here to learn. How can you communicate it to your counselees? I like two different ways. Walking circumspect. Again, I'm from the country. We, I often talk about hunting, right, when you walk through or just going through out in the woods. In the Ozarks, it's a little bit different than here, uh, although you have to pay attention here. In the Ozarks, you have to really pay attention when you're walking in the woods. From ticks to poison ivy to poison oak to poison sumac, uh, There can be bears in the Ozarks. There's for sure rattlesnakes. There's all kinds of stuff in the Ozark woods. And it grows up differently. If you've not been in the Ozark mountains, it grows up differently than around here in the summer. And when you go out in the woods, especially with all the caves and sinkholes we have, you just don't walk. You got to pay attention. Every step you take is important. You can't just walk haphazardly. Why is that important? Verse 15, see that you walk carefully. Every day I live, I'm supposed to pay attention to every step I make. And that goal is to walk in the spirit. I think military ranks another way to help. It's helpful to describe submission, right? You can talk through, and we don't have time to work through it all right now, but you can talk through how the various levels in the military submit to the role they've been given, right? You can have one of the smartest people in a unit be a private or be a first lieutenant and the person above them has no, they're not as smart at all. It doesn't relate to smart. It doesn't relate to anything outside of the role that they've been given. And so you submit to the role you have. It doesn't relate to personhood. It doesn't relate to who deserves what. It relates to the role that they've been given. In the military, same thing in the home, as well as uh, employee and employees. Okay, couple implications. Where is the counseling not living wisely? Are they regularly reading, memorizing, and implying God's word? I think Colossians 3.16 is important. It's the parallel passage to walk in the Spirit. When it says, Walk in the Spirit in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Colossians 3.16. In the same place, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So you say, what is walking in the Spirit? Walking in the Spirit, I define it simply as letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That you have a clear God consciousness about you. Uh, What are the counseling's atmospheric conditions? in terms of just what's their attitude, how does the counsel define submission, and are they, what's, how do they functionally live it? Uh, this is a statement I picked up from uh, Paul Tripp back years ago when I was a student. Horizontal chaos always has as its root a vertical problem. It's a, a very astute observation. Relational conflict really isn't about the other person. Conflict is really more a reflection of somebody's heart and make sure that counseling understands how they fit in the role that God's given them. And there's some homework that you can think through. Okay, let's get to our last text here. We have five minutes on the clock. Next session is a Q&A session, so I may go over just a minute or two and we'll take it out of the Q&A. But I'll still give you your break time because I want to be your friend. All right. <laughs> You've listened well, We've talked a lot. Let's <coughs> pardon me, that's why I said we needed four, not five. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one. I love this text. Let me just work you through it quickly. A lot of notes here. First, a couple key things in the beginning. He's writing to Christians. Look at verse two. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you, where? In the knowledge. Now, what is knowledge? I have it defined here in your, uh, in your notes. Knowledge in verse 2 is the intimate and informed relationship that you have with Jesus. So, knowledge in verse 2 is not the facts that you know. It's the intimacy that you have. Through relationship with Jesus. Now, it's similar to the way, I have it in your notes, it's similar to the way the Bible uses the word no for intercourse. Adam knew his wife Eve. That's the intimacy of that relationship is essentially the way the word's being used here as well. So, grace and peace be multiplied to you where? In the knowledge of God. Now, why In this text, it's a model for personal growth. Why do you need to grow? Verses 8 and 9. Because there are two choices. You can be effective and productive, or you can be ineffective and unproductive. Everybody has those choices. Verse 8. For if these are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. Where? In the knowledge. Right? Same word as verse 2. In your union in Christ, you have a choice. You can be barren, barren pardon me, and unfruitful, or you can be fruitful and productive. Why? Because they're missing the progress, progressive growth that's necessary. Notice he says, If they are in you and abound, you will be productive. But if they're not... You will not be productive in the knowledge of Christ. Now, why is it that these things must be in you? Because you have everything you need for life and godliness. We'll get to that in just one moment. So what makes someone unproductive? Look at verse 9. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. This person is choosing to shut their eyes. We've been driving that four by four all week. Uh, in one particular instance, we were I was having to make a quick turn and uh, it was beginning to rain. There was hail coming down. I saw a place that we could uh, drive under and it would give us protection. So I was making a quick turn, 100% safe. It was just part of a day. And... I glance over, and my wife has her eyes closed. Now, does her eyes being closed, does that make it one more bit safe? No. But she prefers not to see it. Right? If that's She does. We drive lots of places. And I notice, got her eyes closed again. Why? Just because she doesn't enjoy good driving? I don't know. But she closes her eyes. So I don't know why the complete reason is. But I realize I need to change driving whenever she's doing that. That's the text here. When it says that because they're short-sighted even to blindness and they've forgotten who they were. You are spiritually closing your eyes to who you were, to your past, to what God has done in you. Right? You're forgetting The essence of the gospel. You are being willing. You are willfully blind. You have forgotten what Jesus has done in the gospel in you. That's why you're not being productive. Because if you were remembering it, it would change you. Now, that's the reason. What's the source? Look at verses 3 and 4. So, As his divine power has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. The reason you can grow is because you've received the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in you. Every person gets it. Look at verse three. As his divine power has given to whom? To us, all Christians. How much did he give us? He gave us everything, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Where did he give us that? He gave it to us through the knowledge. Oh, it's that intimate relationship we have with Jesus. In the moment you get saved, you have 100% everything you need in Christ in order to live the kind of life that honors the Lord. It happens instantaneously. It's in the moment you get saved. Well, then I would say, well, let's, uh, let's look one note here. Because it says, you've learned this through, you've become partakers of the divine nature. You have been given these, uh, verse 4, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, Verse 4 is talking about the Bible tells us what happens when we're in Christ. And that's what's happened. That's why in verse 3 we have everything necessary for life and godliness because God is fulfilling the promises that he made in the Bible in terms of our union with him. So that relates to what God has done. What should our counselee be doing? That's what I call the pathway for personal growth. Verse five, but also for this very reason. What reason? Well, the reason is that you have everything you need for life and godliness. Because you have everything you need for life and godliness, you are responsible for your personal growth. We are to seek spiritual maturity. Notice, giving all diligence add to your faith. You're to make every effort to grow in likeness, to grow in spiritual maturity. Well, how do we grow? Well, he says he gives us these eight places where we can grow. He begins with faith. I'm not going to be able to define them all because of our time here. But he says, faith, (coughs) pardon me, my apology, virtue, knowledge. Oh, wait a minute. This is a different word, knowledge. This is where English can be tricky. This is a different Greek word. In verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 8, those verses relate to the intimate relationship you have with the Lord. Translated knowledge. Now in verse uh, 5 and in verse 6, as well as over here in chapter 3 when it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge. So chapter 3, 18, those three are wisdom knowledge where you would learn the word and you would try to apply it to life lived. Right? So it's a different Greek word. That's why we are making the difference. So, in verse 5 and verse 6, it's saying grow in your ability to discern God's will and orient your life according to with that will, meaning you learn the word and you practice it. Self-control, self that's discipline, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Grow in those ways. Now, what's going to happen if you grow in those ways? Look at verse 10. It says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So make every effort to do this. And there's going to be some promises if you do that. The first one is, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That means that If you are living your life giving all diligence to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self control, self control, uh, what, godliness, perseverance, pardon me, perseverance, godliness, godliness, uh, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. If you are doing those eight things every day and you are putting all of your intensity into it, you can guarantee you're not going to commit the kind of sin that would make someone wonder whether or not you're saved. You can guarantee it. You won't commit adultery. right? We could list some of those sins. You say, how can you promise that? Because that's what the verse says. If you're doing those things, you can guarantee you won't commit those kinds of sins. You'll never stumble. You're not going to fall in the way that would make someone question whether you're a believer. You never wake up at six in the morning and give all diligence to do those things we just said, and at noon commit adultery. A good friend, a friend of mine uh, used to say, when that pastor fell, he did not fall far. What's that mean? It was just the next step. right? You don't wake up in the day and you're all in, and then at noon you're not. No, it's just the very next step. So it's somewhere a long way ago, he quit giving diligence. That's the first promise. The second thing is when you die, both doors will be wide open. Right? It says in verse 12, for an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. That means that when it's time to die, you're going to have every confidence that you're going to go to heaven. Why? Because you've walked with the Lord. Right, you've had everything you need for life and godliness. Okay. How can you communicate this to your counselee? Let me give you two things here and we're going to wrap up. You can talk about giving your full effort. You can use an illustration of exercise. Right, What does it mean to give all diligence to something? Uh, you can talk about stair steps in terms of the faith, virtue, knowledge. Uh, You can also tell personal stories uh, related to fall of preachers. It could be any number of personal illustrations you could use to talk about uh, when you are full of the Spirit and walking and giving all diligence and when you're not and what's the impact of that. All right, let me give you a break. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to use these passages and others, both in our heart and in the hearts of others,